0: This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. When it comes to inequality, Virginia is a land of extremes. The state is home to four of the ten richest counties in America, all in northern Virginia. Virginia is also home to four of the most economically distressed counties in America, all in southwest Virginia. And of all 50 states, Virginia has the largest gap between the minimum wage and the bare minimum actually needed to support a family of four. That's according to the Commission Examining Racial Inequity of Virginia Law. It was set up during Ralph Northam's administration back in 2019. The commission released three reports covering the consequences of structural racism in Virginia. Later in the show, we sit down with the vice chair of that commission, Andrew Block, He'll share what they found and what progress has been made since. But first, we talk with sociologist Lawrence Eppard. He co-authored a 2021 study called Social and Economic Costs of Inequality in the State of Virginia. Turns out there are big disparities in social mobility across the state, which means in some counties, it's a lot harder for people born in low-income families to escape poverty. Eppard breaks down what inequality of place looks like and... Its consequences.
1: There's a variety of factors beyond one's control that play a huge role in their success in life and what we call their life outcomes in sociology or their life chances. And inequality of place basically means um, by virtue of being born in particular neighborhoods, in particular counties, particular areas of the country, some people have vastly different chances of having a quote unquote successful life compared to others. If you think about like risk of uh, incarceration or what's their likelihood of having a high income or graduating college or being upwardly mobile, we can look at where you live and you can look at it any unit of analysis you want. So you can look at the census track level, you can look at the county level as I did in this paper, or you can look at the commuting zone level, which is sort of the region or the, you know, the metropolitan area where you live. And you can say, OK, by virtue of being born in this particular area, is your risk higher or lower of this particular outcome? And we find that those outcomes, the risk of those outcomes varies significantly across place in the U.S.
2: I was curious, could you like give a quick rundown of what your study found pertaining to um, inequality of social mobility here in Virginia?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and I can give you some really concrete numbers here as well. So. um Let me give a little bit of background. So back in the late 1980s, I think it was 1987, the IRS started requiring people to put the Social Security numbers of any dependents they claimed on their tax returns. And so the idea was you're going to stop fraud, right? So if you claim you have 10 kids to lower your tax burden and you don't actually have them, then you won't be able to put the Social Security number on there. So that was the intent. What ended up happening was, though, was now for the first time, if you could get access to those data, you could actually track people over time from when they were born to when they become uh, adults and see if they are incarcerated, see what their household income is. Uh, did they get married? Were they upwardly mobile? You can look, you know, did they graduate from college, et cetera? You can look at all these outcomes and you can then trace it back to where did they grow up? What was the household they grew up in? and where was that household located? Okay, so uh, some researchers did that. One of them's name is uh, Roz Chetty. He's an economist at Harvard University. Uh, he got access to those data and he made it available to researchers. Now that was anonymous uh, and it was in the aggregate, so he doesn't know like your individual, you know, tax ID number or anything like that. But uh, in the aggregate, what you find is, generally speaking, across the US, there are so many characteristics of communities that impact how successful the kids are who are raised in those communities. There's a whole number of them. We could go through a variety of them, but there are five that really stand out as being really important. The first is single parenthood. And we don't mean single parenthood of the individual household you're in. We mean, regardless of whether your parents are married or not, living in a community with lots of single parents ends up uh, offering less opportunity for kids born there. So that's one. Another one's social capital. So the strength of your social networks, do you know people who have resources and can offer support to you? Racial segregation. So the more segregated a community, the less opportunity it affords people. Income inequality ends up being a really powerful one. So the more unequal the income in the area, typically speaking, the less opportunity for kids to rise up. And then of course, one that most people could guess, school quality. So those are the five variables. They come out. If you look at this article, you can see we've actually um, illustrated how some of these variables work. Now, your question was very specifically, could you talk about the, the inequalities themselves in these outcomes? And they're, they're pretty stark. So you would expect in a rich community, you would expect rich kids to have much better adult outcomes than poor kids. But that is not necessarily because of the community itself. It could just be, well, the rich kids grew up in rich households, and they had lots of money and resources, and therefore they were successful. What we do in this paper is, and what we do in in a series of papers like this, is we just compare low-income kids in different areas. So you could be in a rich county, but we're only looking at the low-income kids, right? And so low-income kids in Fairfax County, Virginia, which is one of the wealthiest places on earth by the way <laughs> like not just like not just in virginia not just in the us but on earth like in the history of the world um in fairfax county virginia about 21% in this study of kids who grew up in this area i think this is in the early 1990s ended up being upperly mobile they made it to the top income group uh in the income distribution so that's about what you would expect. You know, you'd expect about 20% of people to make it to the top 20%, and then 20% to make it to the next 20% and so on. So that's kind of a normal outcome. That's kind of a um outcome that you would want. That's an ideal outcome, right? At the bottom end, so if you go down to say Petersburg City, it's less than 2%. Right? So you go from 21% to less than 2%, right? And again, we're not looking at, oh, well, you know, Fairfax County probably has more rich kids, right than Petersburg City. We're excluding those people. We're only looking at do poor kids in Fairfax County end up upperly mobile at a higher rate than Petersburg City? And the and the answer is absolutely yes. And there's, of course, a bunch of counties in between there. So I'll give you one more. Um, let's talk about uh, incarceration. So obviously, a low number would be really good, right? Nobody being in prison uh, in adulthood. So, In Highland County, Virginia, the number was zero. Zero percent of uh, poor kids who grew up there in the early 90s ended up incarcerated by their mid-30s. A high was almost 14 percent in Williamsburg City, Virginia. So these are huge numbers. Fourteen percent is much higher than the actual number of people in the U.S. who are incarcerated. Um, Not ideal in any realm of of, uh, how you would measure that. So. Um, yeah. And again, we looked at college graduation we looked at marriage. I mean, you named the outcome. We looked at a variety of them and you just see these huge disparities and place ends up mattering a great deal.
2: I'm curious. Could you also like walk us through what the consequences are of this level of inequality? Um, both individually and societally. Yeah.
1: So, um, I mean, one of the consequences obviously is, uh, that there are these things that you don't choose that are involuntary characteristics that you had nothing to do with. You didn't choose the family you were born into. You didn't choose the neighborhood they lived in. You didn't choose your racial group, your ethnic group, your gender, right? Uh, You didn't choose the school you attended, the country you were born into, the specific historical era you were born into, right? So none of this stuff you chose, and yet it has a profound impact on where you end up as an adult. So at the individual level, absolutely, there are these huge consequences. But you, you bring up a, an excellent point, which is the societal impact of all this stuff, right? So, uh, one of the places where these kinds of discussions can sometimes grind to a halt is when you focus just on whether or not people feel a moral obligation to address these things, because some people do and some people don't. Some people feel like it is society's responsibility to help these kids who through no fault of their own had a harder time of it than others. Some people feel like it's not uh, uh, society's responsibility. But one of the things we did in this paper was to think about it differently, was to think, okay, we know there's a cost to individuals, right? If you grow up poor, if you grow up in uh, um, disadvantaged areas, your likelihood of going to jail, not graduating college, not getting married, being a teen mother, all these sorts of things increase. What about society though? Does society pay some penalty? Does society carry some cost for child poverty? And the answer is absolutely yes, right? So you can actually measure, and we did in this paper, a colleague of mine, Michael McLaughlin, uh, did a lot of this analysis, and he's one of the co-authors on this paper. What he did was he um, looked at kids who grow up poor, how much more crime do they commit? How much more likely are they to be incarcerated? Um, How much more likely are they to have health costs and be less economically productive and so forth and so on. And society ends up bearing those costs, right? So somebody pays those additional health costs. Somebody pays for the costs of additional street crime and incarceration. Uh, Our economy suffers by having less economic productivity, right? And so what we found found was uh, in the year analyzed 2019, it costs Virginia, not these individuals, The state of Virginia, so this is all of us. I say us, I grew up in Virginia. I now live in Pennsylvania, but uh, I grew up in Virginia. It costs everybody who lives in Virginia $24 billion per year. It's a lot of money, right? And so what what you end up finding is that inequality costs individuals, of course, right? Because it hampers their ability to be successful adults, but also it costs the larger society regardless of whether we care or not. We, 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 we carry that burden. So the question is, you're going to pay regardless, right? We're going to pay for it. So the question is, do you pay to prevent it or do you pay for the outcomes of allowing this inequality to happen? Well, you can actually analyze that, right? So the question is, how much would it cost to prevent it versus the cost of experiencing it on the back end? And uh, what Michael and uh, another colleague of mine, Mark Rank, have shown in other research—not in this particular paper, but in other research—what they find is, for every dollar that you spend on uh, reducing child poverty, you can save between seven and twelve dollars in the societal consequences. So it makes more sense. It's kind of like you know a heart attack, right? Like it makes more sense to pay money now and eat good now rather than pay $70,000 for a bypass surgery later, right? Same premise here. So you pay $1 of prevention now is worth $7 to $12 of the societal cost of child poverty later. And so for us, again, as social scientists, we try not to tell people, here's the policy you should enact. Here's what you should do. What we try to do is say, here's what's happening. Here's what we think is causing it. We can try to evaluate different policies, um, but you can kind of lay this out for people, and the choice is is pretty stark, right? You can pay for it now or pay for it later, but it's going to be paid for. The question is how much you want to pay.
0: Lawrence Eppard is a professor of sociology at Shippensburg University in Pennsylvania. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. If you've ever had a question about state politics, let us know. Maybe we'll do a show about it. Shoot us an email at bolddominion@virginia.edu. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. Go ahead and subscribe. And hey, leave us a nice review while you're there. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. You can check out all the podcasts from The Collective, from science to history to music to community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. We turn now to Andrew Block. He's a law professor at the University of Virginia. And between 2019 and 2021, he was the vice chair of the Commission Examining Racial Inequity in Virginia Law. The commission released three reports investigating the consequences of structural racism here in the Commonwealth. Bold Dominion producer Alana Bittner talked with Block about what the commission found and what policy solutions they recommended.
3: Structural racism is a term that people throw around and it means different things to different people. But what we really concluded was that this is exactly what it looks like, right, where the people in power literally build Political and policy and legal structures that are designed to segregate and oppress. And that's exactly what Virginia did for hundreds of years. Virginia had these laws on the books from the Jim Crow era or from the post Reconstruction era uh, and various sort of troubling points in, in the Commonwealth's history that had never explicitly been repealed. It maybe were rendered ineffective by federal civil rights law or Supreme Court decisions or things like that, but were still on the books. And so Governor Northam established the commission to examine racial inequity in Virginia law in the summer of 2019. The governor appointed a commission comprised of lawyers and judges and law professors to dig into these old laws and and figure out what he should recommend the legislature repeal. What really was striking to me was how pervasive and explicit and kind of coordinated all of the discrimination and racial oppression were. And so it wasn't just in education. It was in every area of law that Virginia legislators and the governor tried to make it harder to integrate harder for people of color to be successful, to have them lead these kind of isolated oppressed lives. And, and so sort of taken as a whole, it it just made you realize how much effort went into oppressing folks.
2: I'm curious, like when the commission was first created, was it was the intent just to do that first report or
3: had you originally planned to do the total of three reports? So I think in that first report, in our conclusion maybe, or recommendations, we recommended that we continue, and the administration was very supportive of the work we were doing, and, and then we continued doing that. And so what we did initially was to look at some of the areas of law we had looked at, education, voting, housing, criminal justice, and, and just look at data that was out there on disparities. How are black kids doing versus white kids? How are kids of color doing versus white kids? How are schools with high concentrations of people of color doing compared to white schools? And, and so we we weren't doing original research, but we were just looking to see what was out there in terms of outcomes and data and and how people of color were having different experiences navigating these different systems than, than white folks. And, and not surprisingly, uh, you know, and all the statistics, you don't want to be last in. People of color were last and then all the statistics like incarceration that you don't want to be first in, they were first. And so we, we assembled all this data uh, to kind of show the connection between there was, on the one hand, centuries of intentional discrimination and racial oppression, and not surprisingly, the people who were oppressed for 350 or 360 years and intentionally, like, aren't doing well, right? It worked, unfortunately.
2: I know there's, like, a lot in the report. I was going to just, like, focus on a couple of sections and ask a few questions about those. Housing, obviously, is a big one. I'm curious, could you just, like, walk us through what housing disparities look like in Virginia and, um, you know, the background of the policies that help
3: create them? Sure. Well, well, one of the things, um, even sort of before... You get to housing is there's a huge wealth gap between white folks and people of color for so many years uh not only were elected officials in lots of ways like conspiring against people of color being successful but but private industry was also so it was. Incredibly hard for people to get loans to start businesses or to get loans to buy houses and uh it was hard to find banking opportunities it was hard to get hired it was hard to go to institutions of higher learning so you could get the credentialing you needed to be successful professionally so so when we when we talk about generational wealth right which is Wealth that families accumulate over time so that parents maybe can help their kids buy their first house or help them pay for college or afford health care or things like that. Uh, there's much less generational wealth because of these centuries of denial, really, uh, of opportunity among people of color and Black Virginians in particular than there is among white Virginians. And so once you have that as a baseline, right, and there's all these factors that contribute to it. Uh, All those things sort of conspire to create these wealth disparities and income disparities. And so on top of that, it's still statistically true that even controlling for income, Black folks are much less likely to get loans to finance home purchases than white folks. So you don't have the money to buy a house. Even when you have the money to buy a house, it's harder to get financing to buy that house. That's a way that most people like accumulate wealth, right? And develop wealth. And it also makes you much more reliant on renting. And there's not enough stock of affordable housing, affordable renting units. So rents are expensive in relation to what people make. They're more folks who are kind of rent burdened, meaning that rent eats up a significant portion of their revenue. So they're really struggling, right? It's paycheck to paycheck. It's month to month. If something else goes wrong, they don't make their rent. And then Virginia, in in terms of the landlord-tenant relationship, heavily favored the landlord in, in court disputes and things like that. And so you there's been efforts recently to to strengthen the protections, but it you are sort of stacking issues on top of one another right like there's not wealth, there's not income, so there are more folks likely to have to rent and have to use a huge percentage of their monthly paycheck on rent that just makes the on expensive rent right there's not and then there's not a lot of protections available um for those folks when things go south so they all kind of conspire with one another to produce high eviction rates
2: another thing that jumped out to me during the report is how the report mentioned that in Virginia nearly 60 percent of non-federal school dollars come from localities and that of course has implications on like educational disparities and school disparities. So I was curious, could you break down the implications of that and explain the link between unequal housing and unequal education in Virginia?
3: Sure. So most local funds that are used to pay for public schools come from property taxes. So if you live in communities where it's been hard for a significant number of people in the community to accumulate wealth, to buy houses, to to do the things that both create property value and in turn property taxes, Uh, and and then communities where businesses aren't locating themselves and and things like that, uh, it becomes very difficult to raise the revenues necessary to have great schools. And, And Virginia has a funding formula that theoretically covers the cost of of what the state requires in terms of education. Um, But the formula they use doesn't fully account for everything you want in a public school. And while it does account for wealth disparity between communities, so say a place like Petersburg, Virginia pays, and this is just illustrative, it's probably not exactly right, 30 cents on the dollar. And a place like Fairfax might pay 80 cents on the dollar. If the total dollar amount isn't enough to get you what you need, Petersburg kids are still in a bad place. Whereas Fairfax can double what the state makes them pay to add on and add all these other services and benefits and technology and things like that. And so you end up having a system of educational haves and have nots. And more often than not, uh, the have nots are places where there's high concentrations of kids in poverty and kids of color. And and so, so you have kids who need the most help in communities that provide them the least support. And, and the, the kids of color have been sort of locked in there because of these historical inequities and barriers to movement and home ownership and integration.
2: Yeah, I'm curious, like, I feel like this report like really brings home the point how racial inequalities were just kind of created and perpetuated by state level actions and policies like for you what do you feel like that implies about the state's role in addressing inequality like how strongly do you feel like it should be involved
3: well I think it all kind of depends on what sort of society we want to live in and to me if we live in a in a place where for centuries, and, and Virginia is not unique, we have our own unique way that we did this, but every state, every community has its own version of this story, where we tried to create a permanent underclass and private and local and state leaders all were working really in lockstep with one another to accomplish that objective. If you do something for 350 years, chances are you're going to be successful. You know, and what the statistics suggest is that they were. And the problem is that for a democracy to be successful, like you want as many people involved as possible, right? You want good ideas and participation and engagement and community. And for a free market economy to be successful, you want the market to be free for everybody. And it's not. And so so i i think whether you're a conservative or a progressive or however you describe yourself politically uh it would be wise to look at these issues and think about how do we tackle them and and there it's not that there can't be different policy ideas right you know some people think affirmative action is a bad thing and there's maybe legitimate reasons for thinking that. And other people think affirmative action is important and critical. And there's legitimate reasons for thinking that. And uh, and we're limited in all the work that we do by the Constitution and, and what we're allowed to do. So, so it's not that there can't be differences of opinion as to the best way to proceed. But I think we all should be in agreement that we need to do more than we have.
2: Yeah. I guess in this context of Virginia, what progress would you say has been made after the report was released? Um, what were some of the recommendations that were enacted on that you find most important?
3: I mean, unfortunately, there, there have been a number of things that have been done that I think have been helpful. Um, Virginia passed significant reforms to protect access to the ballot, for example we were one of the most difficult places to vote a number of years ago, and, and we've made huge progress in that area. Uh, Medicaid expansion has gotten hundreds of thousands of Virginians access to healthcare that they didn't previously have. And that helps everybody, right? That helps white folks living in rural Southwest Virginia. It helps black folks living in Petersburg. It It helps everybody, but a lot of the people who live in poverty or on that margin are people of color. So it probably has a disproportionately positive impact on those folks. In the education system, uh, we've done a lot to expand and strengthen access to preschool, which is an incredibly important way to get kids caught up, right, who are starting school behind and and level the playing field a bit as they be- began and and I should say that even though some all the things that I mentioned happened under democratic leadership uh this most recent session Virginia passed the Virginia Literacy Act which had support of Governor Yunkin and had bipartisan unanimous support in both houses of the General Assembly and that will dramatically strengthen and improve all aspects of the way that we teach young kids to read in Virginia in a way that will, again, help everybody. Doing this kind of work and, and coming up with good policy ideas to help tackle some of these lingering pervasive problems doesn't have to be a partisan issue at all. Unfortunately, it often becomes one, but it shouldn't.
2: Yeah, that was one of the questions, Like my, one of my final questions is I was curious, like because so many of the recommendations on this report were enacted on during time under Northam, I'm curious, like what does the progress look like in this new like political landscape with a divided House and Senate?
3: I mean, there's sort of reasons to be helpful and then there's hopeful and then there's reasons to be concerned. And I think, um, you know, when when Governor Northam proposed the repeal of all these old laws that were still on the books, it had bipartisan unanimous approval. Uh, when delegate Kerry Coyner, who's a Republican, uh, proposed the Virginia Literacy Act and and had a As the Democratic Senate uh, patron, Louise Lucas, who's an African-American woman from Portsmouth and the chair of the Senate Education Committee, you know, there was bipartisan. She was a Republican, but she partnered with a Democrat and had a Republican governor sign off on it. they had unanimous support and it wasn't framed as a racial justice bill, but like it's going to help lots of kids of color. So things like that give me real grounds for hope. And, and I don't know if it's a question of how we talk about it or how we think about it or, or people listening to their better angels and and doing what's right. Uh, but then I think there's also things to be worried about. Uh, and in particular, us having this debate about how do we talk about our past and how do we talk about racial issues and can we talk about racial issues? and I, And I think- that kind of thing probably isn't so helpful, and if if the commission reports show nothing else, they show that structural racism isn't shouldn't be an exercise in finger pointing, it should just be accepted as like historical fact, and everybody worked together for three hundred and fifty years to oppress people of color and oppress black folks, and they succeeded and and it's not that we haven't made progress since then right because we certainly have but but we're clearly not done yet and so hopefully everyone can see that if they look and and then it's really just a matter of people trying to figure out what's the best way to tackle those issues but I really hope that people stop being afraid of talking about it because it's just really a part of our history. We can be in disagreement about how to address it, but we shouldn't be afraid to agree on the facts.
0: Andrew Block was the vice chair of the Commission Examining Racial Inequity in Virginia Law, and he's a law professor at the University of Virginia. Thanks to him and also to sociologist Lawrence Eppert for speaking with us today. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Our show this week was produced and edited by Alana Bittner. Find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away.